The Incomparable. Number 346. April 2017. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. This week, we're going to talk about books, the book club, back in session. And I have three fine people here to talk about the works of N.K. Jemisin, who I first discovered when her debut novel, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, was nominated for the Nebula Award and the Hugo Award in 2010. She's written a bunch of books since, including some fantastic books like Hugo Winner, the fifth season, which we talked about in that uh, in 2016 when it was nominated for Hugo and Nebula. Uh, joining me to talk about N.K. Jemisin, specifically the fifth season and the, its sequel, The Opalist Gate, but also more generally about her other books, are these wonderful people. Erica Ensign is here. Hello. Hello. Happy to be here. Uh, I this I sense a quivering in the earth that comes from the southeast. It must be the colossal lava powers of Aline Sims. Hello. Hello. How's everybody doing? I'm so excited to talk about my favorite author. I'm excited to see your lava powers. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't burn us with your lava. That's all I ask. I will try. We'll see what happens. And uh, it's book club. It wouldn't be book club without him other than all those episodes we do without him. It's Scott McNulty. <laughs> Hi, Scott. <laughs> Hi, I only read the finest books, so whatever book... If you see a book club that I'm not on, you know that book is not very good. Take that, Neil Gaiman. Yeah. Wow. And Stephen you, King. And Stephen yeah. King. Those, those people, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> they're failures. Washed they up, I say. Scott, or Scott right. says. Anyway. No, I think he means they're not going anywhere because they're staying at the top of the charts. Yeah, Ooh. it could also be... Number nice. one with well a done. bullet. Stephen well done. King. So, so N.K. Jemison, uh, she is like I assume all of us first heard about her with the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms in in 2010. That was the one that it's not nope. bad when your first novel nope. gets nominated as a Nebula Award. No, was it later? Was it earlier? It was what? fifth season was the first I had ever yep. heard of her. Really? Me too. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Well, Scott and I read the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms in 2010. So there, take that. We <laughs> take knew her that. when. We knew her <laughs> back when she was yeah. just a. A debut novelist. Just when she was uh, an award-nominated uh, yeah. novelist. Yeah. Now, she she is, um, if you haven't heard of her stuff yet, I mean, good Lord, you need to read. This is this is basically what this whole episode is going to be, which is <laughs> you need to read the novels of N.K. Jemisin, because every yeah. time I read one of her novels, I... I I sit sit upright and I go, oh my god, she is really great at writing novels. Like this is really good. And then like I go a while between novels and I'm like, oh yeah, N.K. Jemison, I should get to that. And then I finally get to one of her books and I read it and I think, why have I not read all of her books? Because she's so great. Like every time I'm reminded how good a writer mm-hmm. she is. And then quite honestly, the next book or two I read after I read one of her books, I'm a little disappointed because almost without fail, that next writer is never as good a writer as she is. She is she is one of i think one of the best in the business right now in writing science fiction mm-hmm. fantasy novels you know i yeah. feel like I, I completely agree with you but i feel like her writing is is so good and i don't want to say dense because dense sounds negative but whatever the positive version of dense is <laughs> is it, it makes it so that so that reading her books is not it's not like a a smooth and easy, fluffy sort of a read. I'm not saying it's difficult because it's certainly not difficult, but it takes a lot more sort of brain power. She doesn't write like quick quick read books, mm-hmm. right? She, right? That's not what she's yeah. doing. You have to concentrate to really to catch all of the amazing things that she is doing with language and with character and with setting mm-hmm. and world building and all that kind of stuff. So I think I have spread her books out quite a bit um, in part just because I need more time to chew on all of that stuff. And it feels like it's it's, it's like exercise. Like when I'm doing it, it's like, yeah, this feels really great. And afterwards, I'm so happy to have done it. But beforehand, like I never actually, you know, I'm, I'm not terribly looking forward to exercise most of the time. So so that's sort of like I think about her books as, you know, a, a, an even better version of exercise <laughs> for my brain. I was going to say, I, I do not feel that way while I'm exercising. Although I do feel that way <laughs> after I have exercised. <laughs> okay. I will say that. But I do enjoy, as I'm reading, uh, that's why N.K. Jemison is not like exercise for me, because I enjoy it as I'm doing it. Uh, <laughs> although, much like Jason, I don't, uh, like, devour her books one by one. There's actually, I think there's one book of hers I have not read yet. Um, 
and it's it's sitting next to me actually, but I just haven't read it. Uh, I was going to read it, but then the new Ian McDonald book came out, so I had to read that first. Uh, but you had to. I, huh? I, I we had have to. Well, different priorities. It's a moral imperative. <laughs> he is one of my favorite authors. N.K. Jemison also one of my favorite authors, but I think he nudges her out. But they both share the thing they share in common uh, is that they write complex layered stories uh and they they get so much world building i think out of uh a small amount of writing uh so you know i just marvel as i'm reading both of them about how much they get with such economy of language uh and they they do it so well and and you know jason you and i were talking about john scalzi um and about how, you know, he's, he's a good writer, nothing against John Scalzi. Uh, he's an entertaining writer. He writes books that are quick to read. They, I always have fun as I'm reading them, but mm-hmm. after I am done with them, I've never had that moment where I think, that was a really great book. Uh, but every time I've read, uh, an N.K. Jemison book, I, I think, that was a really great book. I felt that way about Scalzi after the first in the Old Man's War series. I was like, this was a really great book. But with N.K. Jemison, I did. Um, so I, I hadn't heard of her until we did the Hugo nominated novels last year. And I read the fifth season and I kept gushing about it, got my husband to read it. And then as soon as the Obelisk Gate came out, we both blew through it. And in the kind of the interim between um, but when I read the fifth season, when the obelisk gate came out, I read um, the hundred thousand kingdoms, like just one after another. So like Erica's experience of it being kind of like exercise where it's like rewarding kind of as you're doing it and after you've done it, I was like, no, I need more from her. <laughs> and so I just kept reading it. And at this point I've read uh, the fifth season three times obelisk gate, I think wow. twice. Hmm. And, <laughs> In in between reading other things too, I just I love them. She's such a um, you know we were talking about economy of language, but she's also it's just this beautiful poetic writing, and I don't have to work to understand what's getting in going on in her novels like I do um, like I'm reading Nine Fox Gambit right now and I'm mm. like 5% through it and it is so hard I have no idea what's going on <laughs> this universe is so very different from from what I'm used to and so like that work I have to do of getting into things um, I don't have to do with her books as much she's I feel like she's got a, a gentler ramp up in introduction into these universes than um, other science fiction and fantasy novels I have but they are dense like they're there's a lot to them they're complex but i don't have to work like i do with other science fiction and fantasy books uh, one of the things i appreciate about uh nk jemison is uh so you're, you you bring up uh nine fox gambit which i read which i thought was fantastic one thing it does not do is that kind of moment where there's an info dump or, or an as you know bob that explains the <laughs> rules of the language uh, or of the world i should say uh and so most of the book you have very you have almost no idea what's going on uh which i like and i really like that book spoiler alert for the nebula nominated podcast that we do uh but she also in as particularly in the, the fifth season in the obelisk gate i feel like she throws us into this world the story is happening she doesn't take a lot of time to tell us okay there are people who can you know control the earth with their their brains and uh these by the way these obelisks were from a past civilization and they do stuff and you just kind of have to you learn it as it's happening which i like yeah, it is. I, I think about this a lot when I'm uh, reading science fiction books because obviously, if you're not setting it in a world that we know, you have to establish the world. And it is hard to do that in a way that doesn't come across as, as you know, Bob, or completely <laughs> baffling. That is a hard line to walk because as, as a writer, these, you know, these writers have to very carefully like structure the story so that information is given to you so that you can figure it out. And if you're too far on one level, it's as you know, Bob, and you're too far the other direction and it's like, you know, anathem or, I mean, there are a few other examples that I can think of where a lot of people say, oh, I just didn't even understand what was going on. Like what Aline said about Nine Fox Gambit, right? And and so if you can if you can nail that, it is a, it is a really great uh, bit of work. And it's not like N.K. Jameson's work is in the regular world, right? Like she sets up these very specific uh, sequences of, of events and you're like, I don't know where this is and what's the setting and is this even Earth? And the answer is it's not and uh, or probably not. And, uh, and, you, have, and you have to or, or is it? it? 
Who knows? But you have to figure you have to figure it out. But she does pull you along. I know some people get frustrated when you don't give everything all the information to them up front, right? They're like, I don't, I don't understand. I, I see that on TV shows too, where people are like, but we don't even know why that's the way it is. And it's like, yeah, that's the point is it's a mystery. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, she does it in a way that isn't frustrating. It's just like, you're learning. It's very artful. I, I, I'm really impressed because these are super weird worlds that she's created. The hundred thousand kingdoms that inheritance trilogy, a very strange world that she's built, but you figure it out as you go. And, and likewise with the, the fifth season universe it's it's you figure it out Mm -hmm. especially since in the fifth season it's uh it's sort of happening at three different times at once there are three different points of view that are going on and so you're learning about the world in like in in these different places in different times so you're getting kind of a vaster picture of it than you would if you were learning through the eyes of like just a a single character living through their life in one in one place or you know one journey so it's but I appreciate that. We are going to spoil some of these books now. So if you're completely, um, <laughs> completely spoiler averse and yet listening to this episode, I would say you might want to go read, especially, uh, you should read at the very least the fifth season, um, and then, and then come back because I'm about to say something that is kind of a spoiler. But to Erica's point about the time frames, I mean, one of the things I really love about the fifth season is that you're seeing a story told in three different, the three different stories. Mm-hmm. And it's unclear. I mean, it's clear that they must be in different time zones because one of the time zones is sort of the end of the world mm-hmm. and the other two don't seem to reflect that. But it's unclear exactly what you're seeing. And then as it becomes clearer, you start to wonder if the same character is, if it's the same character in all three time zones. Um, and if that, what you're really seeing is this woman's life told out of sequence. Um, but I feel like you can intuit that. This is one of those artful things. You can intuit that fairly early, but you're not given confirmation of it until quite late. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of brilliant that you don't know, you know, whether you think, you know, what you think is true is actually true until you get fairly close to the end. Uh, and when it's revealed that it really is three very different phases of this one woman's life, which is, it's great. With different names even, which I think yeah. is the trickiest. I didn't pick up on that until um, so I listened the last time I read um, was actually I finished it this morning so um, (laughs) but uh, I listened to it and uh, I was just kind of puttering around the house and it came to that that first reveal about um, Cyan and Demaya being the same person and I remember reading that for the first time and going (gasps) (laughs) <laughs> and then, you know, and, and Justin was kind of standing beside me when that happened. And, and we looked at each other. And we were like, that was really a cool moment for us. The second reveal wasn't as much of like by that point, I was like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, this is her even later on. But she does such a great job of of. Uh, switching between first person and third person and telling these stories and then they converge and they make sense. And it's just beautiful. It's just, it's art. I, I just, I can't call it anything else. I just thought it was so artful and so delightful. I have to say it is, it is, I mentioned this on the Nebula episode last year. It is gutsy of her to start a book with the death of a child. Um, with the murder of a child, because that, that is what happens at the beginning of the book. And, uh, that's that's like the author just throwing down like, well, are you going to come with, with with me or not on this story? Because <laughs> it starts out so <laughs> brutally, but um, it really does inform sort of like the journey of the character and sort of retroactively why, you know, you, you discover things about her later that she did earlier <laughs> that make you, I mean, it, that it's almost like holographic storytelling, right? Because things that you're seeing because of the way she's to- chosen the time sequences, uh, y- you are you are judging her based on something that happened here. And then later in the book, you realize, oh, that's because of this thing that happened earlier. Once you realize that all three timelines are are actually her at different phases in her life. It's a this is a I mean, there's a reason it won the award. Right. It it is Mm -hmm. is pretty a pretty spectacular bit of work. Um, I should explain, by the way, for those who, who are still with us but don't know what the heck we're talking about, uh, a little bit about this. This is a world that is set sort of a, a, after a series of apocalypses. The idea here is that every now and then the fifth season comes along, which is a season of destruction. And there are it's a weird world where there are like gems floating in the sky and there's there's 
old technology that it still exists from previous apocalypses. And, and there's uh, no moon. There's no, no moon. moon, which is hinted at at a, a couple of points. And I kept thinking to myself, hmm, I think this is something about the moon, not expecting <laughs> the last line of the of the first book of the fifth season to be the payoff of like that there's that this is all about the fact that there's no moon. What does that mean? Um, but uh, but as was mentioned earlier, there is this whole earth power thing where it's people with lava powers or earthquake powers and they can still earthquakes and they can create earthquakes and the most powerful of these origins or rogas depending on whether you're slandering them or not um, is uh, they can they can cause the world to end basically because that's what happens in the prologue of the fifth season is that somebody yeah. destroys the world who we then meet later and discover quite what led him to that moment of of rendering a large part of the world asunder and it's all I, I I don't mean I, I've used this with people to explain what this book is like is and I don't mean it to be flippant. I'm not trying to joke here. I'm not trying to run down the book. It is a very serious, carefully constructed book that on another level strikes me as being like one of the best X-Men stories ever told because these <laughs> origins are like kind of they're kind of mutants and they're and they're treated badly, but they have powers. And the question is like this, there's a social structure that's meant to give give them, you know, the, the society is supposed to control them completely. But do they rise up against it? But, you know, they're but they're dangerous and they can hurt people and it is that kind of a story but you would never think that just you know on first glance because of the way that the story is told but i did appreciate that that you know like uh every now and then i read a book and i'm like oh this is kind of like the x-men you know you know maybe i read a lot of comics but like the rook actually maybe um, the rook feels like the x-men too it's the same thing where Mm -hmm. it's like these whack a group of people with wacky powers but here it's the oppression that gets to me the fact that these these incredibly powerful people are treated very very badly, even though they're so powerful by people who fear them. And that, that definitely gave me that vibe. And it's one of the things I love about these books is that the, the origins are really, really badly treated. And um, it, it's like everybody's afraid of them for good reason, but everybody's afraid of them. Yeah, they're brought to like basically voluntary slavery. They're the, the the guardians are sort of their jailers, but it's not a typical jail because, you know, they live in dormitories and they go to classes yeah. and stuff like that. They're just sort of brainwashed into into thinking that they are cursed and terrible people because of these powers that they have. And anything bad that happens in the world is probably going to be their fault. So they need to be watched at all times unless they have lots and lots of rings and are very powerful, apparently. Except not really, as right. we learn later. Or so. you could you could say, imagine. Sorry for this, Scott, but imagine if uh, if in Harry Potter, instead of uh, "Yay, I get to go to school and then do a magic job," it's like you will go to this school and then you will do this job, but the the Muggles will be in charge of you all the time. It's that same idea. You find out that you're a very special person. But the bad news is you are going to be treated horribly and have no choice in your life because you because you are special. And that that's the ugly. That's not what happens in Harry Potter, but it is what happens in the X-Men. <laughs> so that's why I'm sticking with my X-Men theory here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the, so the fifth season tells the story of this one character in the three time frames. And we meet a lot of interesting characters along the way, especially Alabaster who is named satirically by people as Alabaster because he is the darkest skin that anybody's seen. One of the things that I think is the case in the, in these books is that um, it's very clear there, there are um, that a lot of the people, there are a lot of different skin tones in the books and she does make a point. It's not, it doesn't come across as anything other than matter of fact, but you do kind of notice. And she does a lot of inversions too, where I believe in both of her novel series, she talks about people with light skin as being like from, I I think in the hundred thousand kingdoms, the light skin, people are from like the equator um and 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 the darker skinned people are at the poles and she just is a lot of playing around with issues of of race and things like that but alabaster Mm -hmm. is is the darkest skin that anybody's ever seen and so of course they call him alabaster and he's a fascinating character (laughs) who you think is you've never you're never going to see him again after what happens in the first book but no he's a character in the whole second book too Mm mm-hmm and quite an important character too. I mean, he's sort of the part of the found family that that she sort of create creates around her, or maybe draws uh, to herself. Um, right. The the main character, whose name at that time is Essen, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. I get mixed up because she had three different names in the first book, so it's that's the one that that sort of carries yeah. over into the second book. The Obelisk Gate is funny because it's um, 
it's a it's what happens after the world ends because alabaster has basically destroyed the main city and 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 created this it, it's going to be sort of unlivable conditions in this world for so long that perhaps nobody will survive it and so how, where do you go from there and the answer is that there 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 are other other forces at play here there are these you know basically like rock people <laughs> <laughs> who live stone in stone eaters? Yeah, the stone eaters who live in the ground, um, and and you get the sense that there is this 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 battle happening on a much higher level. What happened to the moon? Um, why are these gems floating in the air? And it turns out that they are machines that can be kind of like tuned by the powers of the origins. And we spend a lot of time in the obelisk gate inside a, uh, a like a geode where they're in this like underground city where um, where Alabaster is there, but he's dying and, uh, and, and, and literally turning to stone. Right. Mm-hmm. And being eaten by a stone eater. Yeah. Yeah. Ew. Not at all creepy. <laughs> or is it creepy or is it sort of beautiful? I don't know. Creepy. I don't I, I'm, firmly, I'm firmly on team creepy. <laughs> all right. Why not both? Our, Mary, our main character with her many names, um, but Essen um, in, in Obelisgate, uh, her, her status as a mother is really uh, comes to the fore in the second book, which is that we saw her, her son... Um, killed at the beginning of the first book and 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 what happens is her husband takes their daughter and leaves and so she's she she discovers her son is dead and her daughter is gone and her husband killed the son but kept the daughter and in obelisk gate we finally get to see what happens with her husband and daughter and that's told so instead of having the parallel stories of the her three timelines we get the parallel stories of mother and daughter and the fact that that like mother like daughter she has a she has a uh, some power that um that is uh perhaps potentially quite important to what happens to this to to the world and whether the whether the world can can survive or not but i like that i like that we finally got i kind of wrote that off as something we wouldn't wouldn't see very much of and instead novelist gate it's like she just put it aside and said we'll get back to the father and the daughter i'm gonna get there but but you're gonna have to wait until book two it's kind of like in in the first book you have as you were saying the the idea of the oppressed orogenes and and that whole idea sort of on a, a societal level it's writ large and then we focus in on that very same thing in the second book because we watch the journey with with her daughter Nasan and the father Gija I believe was his name and you know he is so very very filled with these prejudices that he's been brought up with that he killed his own son at the beginning of the at the beginning of the first book and he you know rescues his daughter who is the good child uh, because he at first doesn't know that she has powers and then you get to watch the evolution of that father-daughter relationship which is i mean she's such a daddy's girl at the beginning of the book and she's hiding her power from him because she loves him so much and then you get to see the evolution of that of that relationship as she can't hide it anymore and and how he really has some some you know sort of frisson going on in his head when he's trying to keep these two thoughts in his head that this is the the girl that he loves so much and yet she's got these terrible powers so she must be evil and and that ends up driving a big part of the plot towards the end of the book. Lean after reading the first book um how how did Obeliskate hit you right because obviously fifth season really um you loved it and it jumped out at I you. Did. So what what was your reaction to the sequel? It's that's a hard act to follow, right? It it's a really hard act to follow. I like it quite a bit. I wish that I'd had more time so that I could have reread it again. Um, because what I found is that I've, I remember a lot more. I felt like the first book had a lot more memorable moments in it than the second book does. In the second book, um, it's been, oh gosh, since it came out. So that's what close to six months ago since I've read that. And so I, I'm finding that like I've got little flashes of things that happen like, um, more with the obelisks. Um, more of the father-daughter story. Um, I remember the end kind of well. Um, but other than that, it's kind of, it's kind of a blur. So I wouldn't say that it falls into, I've heard a lot of people, you know, that the stereotypical track, trap of a, a second novel. Like it's, oh, it's just bridging the story. And I, I felt like it did that some, but I do feel like it's got a lot of good solid ground on its own. Um, because there are some second books that I just don't remember at all. <laughs> so, um, so I, enjoyed it quite a bit but um 
and and a lot of that I think is just appreciation for Jemison as a writer and going back and having those moments where I read a sentence as a writer and editor and I'm like, wow, that was pretty. I'm going to read that again. Um, so maybe if she weren't such a lyrical writer, I wouldn't. It, it also wouldn't have stuck with me as much as it has. But I think I think it's really solid, especially you know for for a second book. Yeah, the third book is coming out this summer. So people can look for it. I, the um, I think one of the one of the things that I really like about this the, these books when I think about it is, um, I think about the the I keep mentioning them the, the these gems in the sky these things that are floating in the sky which in the first book initially seems just like colorful world building of like imagery. Like, oh, this is a mm-hmm. magical place where people can create earthquakes and there are gems floating in the sky. And it turns out that it's way more complicated than that. And there's a gem that's down in the mud and they try to lift it up and uh, it ends up, you know, causing a disaster and all of these things that that happen. And then the moon is that great thread, right, where where I feel like there should be something in the sky, but it's not there. And, and in the end, that's the question. And in the second book, you realize that... Where the series is going with its with its its climax is it's all about the moon. It's about how the moon is apparently. Correct me if I'm wrong because it has been a little while since I read it too. The moon it's suggested is a stabilizing feature of this, whether it's Earth or not. It's a stabilizing mm-hmm. feature of this planet. And since since some magical something happened to knock it out of orbit, that's why there have been all these disasters. And so now the big plan is that they need to. Uh, catch the moon they need to, mm-hmm. to to the moon's coming back around it's apparently in an orbit that brings it back around every so often and the, all of this has been leading to that moment and it's such an uh, just a, a ridiculous thing that it's just like I cannot believe she just did that which is we're gonna you know we're gonna use all our powers this is what we're gonna do we're gonna get that we're gonna get that moon back what it's mm-hmm. and that's how the second book ends so um yeah the moon the moon's coming back, I think, is what they say at the very end of the Obelisk Gate. So we have to get it. <laughs> that's that's the thing that I loved about this book, too, is that it, it really did cast so many different shades of light on the first book and the things that I already thought that I knew about the first book. It, it widened the world and changed changed the way I saw things in a number of ways. It, the, the moon was certainly one of them and the obelisks being such an important uh, important piece of the puzzle. And also even just some of the, the characters and stuff. Like you said, Jason, I wasn't, I didn't really think that we were going to find out anything about her daughter. And then suddenly we not only find out the, the journey of her daughter, but that, that she she may or may not in the third book have a, a really big role to play in this catching the moon sort of thing. Right. And then also we find out in, I think it's in the second book, we find out that when um, when Cyan, I believe is her name at the time, when she lifts that first broken obelisk out of the mud, she, for a brief moment, she sees somebody inside of it. And we don't find out until the second book that that somebody that she saw inside of it ends up being the same um, little boy uh, rock uh, stone creature, eater, stone yeah. eater um, stone. Hoa, who follows her around all the way through the first book and then into the second book as right. Essen. Like, we didn't even know that that was the same same creature uh, until the second book and i'm like oh my oh my god <laughs> that's just it's another mind-blowing moment <laughs> character wise too this is all very carefully plotted right i mean she obviously hadn't written all three books before the first book was released but clearly the story and the details were there it just it is it is completely consistent it doesn't feel like it's one book and the fifth season can be um enjoyed on its own without reading the second book it doesn't feel like you were sent you know you bought half a book and a coupon for the rest of it, but yet it, it is, I really appreciate the feeling of planning. Like she knows what story she's telling and, and in Obelisk Gate, you can see, Oh, okay. Like a lot of the stuff in Obelisk Gate was totally set up in fifth season. Yeah. It absolutely was, was set there, which is, which is great. I like to see that. I, it gives me confidence to know that, that um, the writer of the book I'm reading has the confidence to, and, and the planning ability to do all of that so that I, I can, I can just read it and not be afraid that they're going to let me down. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to know how she, like what her specific process is for this. So I know, you know, I've heard like Patrick Rothfuss talk about outlining books and that kind of thing. So is that something that she did? I haven't read a lot about her, her process, but there are those threads that she's carrying through. And a lot of them are 
like small little things that I didn't notice until the second read through. And I was like, oh, yeah, that, you know, that happens. Well, I guess the third read through that happens to connect this thing in the second book. Um, But it's not profound. And I can't think of an example off the top of my head. But it's just, um, it's a beautiful, beautifully woven. And I wonder how, how she's planning that is she carrying it in her head? Did she write uh, an outline? Or is it just all coming together? And she's like, Oh, yeah, you know, she she just knows, you know, she dreamed it all and knows all these details. I don't know. (laughs) I love the idea of her just dreaming it all. uh, And then waking up and jotting it down. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. What else should we say about uh, Fifth Season and Obelisk Gate? Um, you know, it's not completed, but it's coming out soon with the, the next part this summer. Um, I wasn't, I felt that Obelisk Gate was a, was a, a very good um, follow-up to Fifth Season. I, I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, structurally, it, it couldn't do what the first book did with the three different timelines, but it still found a way to tell threaded stories in this world and also further that mystery that comes from the first book. And I, I didn't, you know, I, I was quite happy about it. I thought, good job. Good job, N.K. Jameson. Good job. <laughs> good job. Well, and I mean, you know, this is, I think Aileen brought this up, the second book in the series, there's always that uh, problem that the first book out, you know, is your first entree into this world and all this stuff is exciting and new and you're surprised by everything. And the second book has a big job to, it, it's almost impossible for it to surprise you as much as the first book does. Um, but that being said, I think this is a really good second part of a trilogy. Uh, hopefully the third one will wrap it up and be in a satisfying way. Um, and, and I enjoyed it. I would suggest that no one read the second book without reading the first book. No. Oh, yeah. I, mean, no, I don't know yeah. why you would do that, but <laughs> people do lots of weird stuff, like listen to podcasts they about do. books they haven't read. Just, just, one, just one example. One of the mysteries we didn't talk about, uh, which was another part that I really liked about the Obelisk Gate, is the character of her guardian from the first book, who at the end of the first book, I just assumed that he was destroyed. And yeah. nope, he, he wasn't. Well, part of him sort of was because he, he's not even quite the same character. And through his sort of like struggle to regain his own self, we learn more about another mystery that is is sort of related to the mystery of the moon and the obelisks. And there's a thing in his head. And it, yeah, there's, it's it's a thing that we don't completely understand yet. So I don't even really know how to articulate it. But it's, it, it deepened the mystery and made that character who I thought was already sort of multi-layered and multifaceted in the first book, um, even deeper and even more interesting and infuriating at the same time. Um, <laughs> because like, you know, he was doing some, some bad stuff, but then, then he does some good stuff and it's just, it's, it's very good. I like him. And then the <laughs> like way, it. the way that, that his story is revived in the second book is really interesting because, you know, yes, he is apparently dead in the water, literally dead in the water in the first book and the second book the second book basically says okay remember that guy who was dead in the water well he was dead and in the water and sinking (laughs) and then something really strange happened and he was dead so he's still dead but he's now sort of not because of this thing that happened to him and there's this question of like who you know what force is motivating him now and why is he different and that's unclear because you do get the sense that you have you have competing factions here about like do they want the moon to come back or not do they want the the uh, the the people who live on the surface of the planet to survive and be stable or is it better if they all die so that the stone people can just live and be happy and that's all like not entirely clear at this point but i do like that 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 the book doesn't say um you know oh it turned out he didn't die they're like no what you saw he did pay a price and and this guy is is kind of him but kind of not and and uh that was really good i felt like i felt like that was her playing fair and not just reviving a character and saying you know fooled you but instead saying, no, there was a price to pay. You saw what you saw. And then this thing happened after that. Yeah. And I like they, when they're in the, the, the calm, the geode thing, right? They discover, uh, this control room and, you know, it gives you, cause a lot of this is, uh, 
fantasy I would characterize yeah. it as, but it's, it's, there's, then nope. there are these dashes <laughs> of science fiction where you find a control room and, uh, there are pictographs and they have to try and decipher it and there are buttons and they control all the stuff and there's, uh, what these like metal things uh, that try to kill you or insert themselves into you. It's unclear what they do, but they're probably not good. Well, I love the whole idea of this lived in world that the, um, the, uh, we did have this debate on a previous episode, didn't we? Um, mm-hmm. uh, I yeah. love I love the debate <laughs> about is it science fiction or is it fantasy? The lived in world thing, though, the fact that there have been many many d- dead civs, right? These previous civilizations that died and their tech is still around, and that's a really fun bit. If throughout and, and in the obelisk gate you get them yeah they're living in this underground city but it's got like a trap door and tunnels and stuff that lead to the surface so you think it's just this old town like from a western or something it's just a little deserted town but you go down through you go through this in this building and then down and suddenly you know, there's this whole city underneath it in this geode and then there's a control room so it's like where is this from what is this old tech people don't really know how it works they just try to keep the air circulating that's all that's all pretty great that's why I maintain that this is Earth and this is a science fiction book and that it is just so far in the future that the technology yeah. that they have is, you know, it's Clark's law that, that you know, it's, it's technology so advanced it might as well be magic. And I mean, they're ta- they actually have some hazy records that the, I can't remember exactly when the first season was, but I know they're talking like time frames of 20,000, 30,000 years. Right. And I mean, when you think about the entire existence of, of human history at this point, I can't even fathom what 20,000 years in the future might look like. So that's why my my headcanon, until it is proved otherwise, uh, perhaps in another book, is that this is Earth and it's just far in the future, which is what I thought in the first book. And now I think it even more after reading yeah, Apple Escape. <laughs> we'll see yeah. what the moon looks like when it comes back. How about that? <laughs> That'll tell us yeah. everything. Yeah. We'll just mm-hmm. see. Is that our moon? It is called the Broken Earth series, and it does talk about the continents breaking apart and coming together and, you know, like, like these series of continents, continental drifts, and then coming Mm -hmm. together again, um, in a way that kind of makes me think it's, it's Earth. Maybe. I mean, Earth, Earth, the planet, and Earth, like the idea of land yeah. and ground, is not land. necessarily mm-hmm. not necessarily the same. Erica, the reason that I think that, that that I think of it as fantasy and not science fiction is mostly because I don't see a lot of scientific backing for people who can cause earthquakes with their minds, and <laughs> you know that 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 seems to be um, magic. You're right. I mean, maybe they were genetically mm-hmm. engineered, and maybe, but I'm I'm not sure you can genetically engineer somebody to be telekinetic like that. that that seems like still seems like fantasy to me with science trapping. Well, maybe they did it in the X Men. I'm sure at some point people thought that it was impossible for another human being to make fire. So all just, right, you know, okay, technology. Yeah, well, they're, 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 it's mutants, Scott. It's the X the X Men. They're mutants. <laughs> That's right. The mutants. The are science. Everywhere. You can't argue with atomic science. Atomic that is true. Uh, energy creates mutants, and mutants have powers. And I <laughs> I think I've just proven. There you go. Erica's point that they must just be that's right. Well, and in, science. in the obelisk gate, the isn't it's revealed that she has even like these origin well, origins. Origin. There you go. They can do even more than control the the Earth. Right? They can. There's like energy between cells or something, so they could do other crazy things. And the stone uh, and the stone eaters, you know, were actually adapted genetically altered altered molecularly somehow from people they were originally humans that that went too far but but i will sort of right. concede the the fantasy point on on one level jason and that is the whole sort of father earth thing and the idea mm-hmm. of the planet itself having a i don't know a, a personality a mind a life something which again not quite clear yet uh, that does sort of strike me as as fantasy and i'm i'm not sure i can see any science fictiony way to redeem that part of it so yeah i guess i'm still reserving well, a little judgment i'm pretty sure there's just a computer at the core of the earth erica <gasps> mind blown <gasps> this is a star trek episode <laughs> But we we have that now, right? Like now we talk about Mother Earth and what does Mother Earth want and um and all of that. So it it could just be an inversion of right. But yeah. we're not people are not Mother Earth is not answering. Right. That's that's the <laughs> thing. Like we're not, not actually for getting you, messages. Scott. From- well, not for, that's true. I may not be <laughs> sensitive in that way. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Call me Mother Earth or send me a text. Actually, if if you yeah. hear this, text me. <laughs> please don't call. Me. Yeah, don't call. Just send a text. It's an email if you really. 
me too but uh, oh no don't email either yeah i know <laughs> if you really need to but just don't i don't i don't want to talk to mother earth um no. anything i, I want to talk about her her the hundred thousand thing kingdom series a little bit um a little bit is that okay or are there more things to say about um fifth season of novel escape before we do that i just want to say how much i love cyanite <laughs> just stop i love cyanite i love she's she is a tough woman who's uh-huh. been put in a tough situation and she is determined to make it work as best for her as she can and um i don't know i think part of that is how i was raised as kind of a working class person and you know you you ascend to the best you can while maintaining social um harmony and and not rocking the boat too much and i think the reason i like cyanite so much is because i see so much of myself in her she's maybe a little bit more um abrupt and blunt than i tend to be but i just um that that period in her life i don't know there was something about it that i just thought was amazing and i felt like in some ways it was her being as true to herself as she could be because when she was young she was doing what she needed to do to survive and when she was older she was doing what she needed to do to blend in but a lot of what we get with cyanite is her just just doing what she needs to do. And I so greatly appreciated that and appreciated how it was, I don't know, uncomplicated, I guess, in some ways, while all this complication was happening around her. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's the first book really makes you wonder. I mean, talk about putting a spotlight on a on a on a person and their character um, is if you, you show them in those three phases of their lives and you know, by viewing what happened to them in these three key phases, you really do gain a great, a greater understanding about that character. And that this is a fully realized character. We, we learned what happened when she was a child. We learned what happened when she was a professional. And then we learned what happened when she tried to build a life after being a professional and having that kind of fall apart. And it turns out have her whole family kind of, uh, die and and be uh and having her history wiped out and and so it's yeah it's a it's it's a character you don't get to know characters that well in books very often and see that many aspects of them as you do with her the hundred thousand kingdoms which i guess is called the inheritance trilogy is where she first kind of made her name which i still haven't read yet <laughs> so i i really loved the hundred thousand kingdoms and the funny thing is, I never read the other two books in the series. Now, shout out to Glenn. Glenn Fleischman read all of them and loves them, but he yet would still not be on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, no shout out to Glenn. Take that back. Uh, I, I personally retract Jason's shout out to Glenn. Glenn who? I say to you, Glenn who? 100,000 Kingdoms. So that's her debut. Uh, a, a, fan, a fantasy in a, a much clearer way. This is this yeah. is a world where this, there the yeah. go, there are gods and there are there are godlings, which are basically like demigods, and there are people, and there is this very complicated scenario where there's an incredibly rich family called the Aramari, I think, um, who uh, who basically have one of the gods of the planet chained up. And they're like, the gods are their slaves, kind of. And they're essentially, um, there is a revolt and things change over the course of the book kind of dramatically for the uh, epistemological foundations of this society is one way to put it. When, you, when you've got gods kind of coming and going, it's kind of a big deal. But um, I love this book when I first read it. One of the things I loved about it, if you can rack your brains, those of you who have read this, um, back, to, back to the last time you read it, one of the things I loved about it is just the I'm a sucker for the idea that there's an incredible power that is controlled but could be on the verge of breaking free and killing you at any time. The magicians uh, books have some of this too, where they talk about gods. There's something I love that about fantasy gods, this idea that like we have magic and we have people and people are cool, but they're gods. And if they smite you, you, 
you are smote. That's the end for you. And that's the world of 100,000 Kingdoms, is that they've chained up a god who's incredibly powerful, and if you make one wrong step, he will destroy you. And I love that about about that. And you, this Prince of Darkness, this this dar- the the nighttime god who's who's kind of the devil. You could you could, and then you feel kind of sorry for him because he's been he's been enslaved by these awful humans for a long time. It's a it's a a lot of world building in these books too. Yes. Yeah. I'm a I'm a sucker for mythology. Growing up, I loved Greek mythology and Roman mythology, and I checked the same books out of the library over and over and over again. Same Greek myths, and this kind of filled that for me. Um, this and and this idea too that um, that this family really has taken the gods and enslaved them, all of them. Um, except for maybe one, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Like, that was fascinating to me. It was very, very interesting. And I, I thought it was really well executed. It, it's a uh, it's a fascinating book. It turns out having... So I didn't read the other two books in the series until uh, last month, and I read them both. So in preparation for this podcast. And it's funny looking back on it now that what seemed like this kind of mind-blowing story about like the rise and fall of gods is in the context of the other two books, merely the prelude for what is to come, which is pretty amazing um, mm-hmm. that, that you think that. Because it turns out that, of course, the rise and fall of gods and the creation of new gods that happens in 100,000 Kingdoms leads to uh, a dramatic power shift. And so, uh, you know, several years after I read the first book, I picked up the second book and couldn't remember a whole lot about the first book as I, as I started reading it. And it's set 10 years after the 100,000 Kingdoms. And you get to see a little hint of what's go- been going on with these with these gods since there's been they've they've achieved their freedom, and and uh, the light god has has uh, had to be sentenced to uh, some punishment for being complicit in the sla- enslavement of the other gods, and it's a very different book, the uh, the the broken kingdoms very different book, but a really good book. In fact, I think my favorite of the three is that second book and they, they it does stand alone i feel like more than the the uh fifth season uh, series does in the sense that uh the second book the third book doesn't stand alone but the second book it's got a completely different protagonist and although the characters from the first book do appear in it it really is about the journey of the of the protagonist of the of the second book who's a blind artist who can only see in a very clever uh setup she can only see magic so she's blind, but if somebody's magical, she can see them and she can see the magic they do. And at some point she's taken up into the, the city in the, in, inside the world tree that the, the rich family lives in, which is this enormous tree um, that it's like it sounds. And suddenly she can see everything because everything is magic up there. <laughs> and that's pretty cool too. So it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I really love the second book a lot. I don't know, Aline, what you thought about the, about the other books in the series. I did not like the third one as much. Um, yeah. And I agree with you. I thought the second book was was considerably better than the first one. And considering how quickly I blew through the first one, I feel like that's quite a testament. Um, because I really, really did love The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. I, I loved the premise of it. I loved the execution. Um, it the ending surprised me. Um, you, I mean, you don't see many people ascend to godhood in books. Yeah. Um, so, so it was, I just, I just thought it was, it was delightful. Um, and the second book, like you said, I think because it had that humanizing element, um, to it and the humaniz- humanization of the gods, right? Because in the first book, we have, um, we have the gods as slaves, but they're still gods, right? They're still, um, feared and revered kind of in a way right and they're te- they're tens of thousands of years old and they're still powerful and they're still capricious and they still look down on humans right they're they're gods yeah. but they're just kind of in chains yeah yeah and in book two um the gods the full gods didn't take part as much and it was more humanity and the demigods and um i liked it i thought i thought it was i thought it was great i thought again the her world building is so rich um and and wonderful and i i agree yeah i love the second book i love the first book i liked the third book but i didn't love it to the level that i do the other two the second book's even kind of like a murder mystery it's basically like a, a demigod is dead 
and how could that have been, happened? happened and yeah. who killed them and why and uh I, I i was tickled by that too it's like well this is a very different approach to a second book in a trilogy uh, and and it ends up yes it ends up linking to everything that happened in the first book it's not just uh, happening in the background, there are, are are things connected to it. But you know, and and you should probably read the first book before you read the second book. But the second book just stand stands on its own as well. It is, yeah. it is, uh, you know, new character, new lead character, and uh, her her friend Shiny, who is a a a, a, a character of mm-hmm. mystery whose identity is revealed later on in the book, uh, and that that's really uh, a, a fun thing too. Um, this uh this the secret of her magical power to see magic and to draw these uh draw these pictures um that sort of come to life which is uh pretty cool stuff there's a lot of good stuff there scott do you have any recollection of these books at all (laughs) (laughs) i've been wrecking my mind trying to i've read all three i remember that uh, mostly because I just checked Goodreads to make yeah. sure that, in fact, I had read them all. Because uh, I remember the first two. I have absolutely no memory of what happens in the third one. The third book is about about C.A., who is the trickster god, and he, he basically befriends these two children, and they make a blood oath, and the blood oath turns him into a mortal um, and he starts to age, and he's this—he's this Cupid-like figure. I always thought, like he's a—he's a—he's a trickster god, like a Loki, but he's also a, always seen as a child, and he's the god of children. And suddenly, he's like going into adolescence, and he's an adult, oh, and he yes. gets older, and he's because he's going to die, and the, the gods don't know what to do about it, and. Uh, and it turns out that there's a whole plot of like somebody else wants to become a full god instead of a demigod, and the universe is put at risk. It's sort of like the end of a Doctor Who season where suddenly all reality <laughs> is at risk because how can we how can we increase the the stakes to the highest possible point, which is the entire universe will be destroyed if they can't solve this problem. And it was you know it was fine, but um, CA is not one of my favorite characters anyway, and I think it was trying it was a high degree of difficulty to get you to care about him. And there's some good characters in that book. It's not bad, but it's not as good as the first two, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I particularly remember enjoying the second. I mean, I enjoyed the first and the second, but the second one sticks out in my mind. Well, it reminded me a little bit of like maybe some of those Max Gladstone books where it's like it's magic, um, but it's also kind of genre, like a different kind of genre. Like it, mm-hmm. it really is like a murder mystery. There's no detective. Well, there is kind of police people, but it's like who killed the mm-hmm. demigod is a fun storyline to follow, even though it does become way bigger than that. Because in the case of all good detective stories, it turns out it's not just about the one person who died. There's a whole conspiracy around it. And that's good, too. So, yeah. Yes. That's a good book. I liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. Broken Kingdoms. So, yeah, those are worth reading, too. She has other yeah, books that I have not read. <gasps> I it? have read The Killing Moon, but I have not read the second book in that series. Okay. And there are only two, at least at this point. I, I think I saw somewhere on, on uh, maybe in the Kindle store, it referred to it as the Dream Blood Duology, which means there are mm-hmm. only two books, people, just buy the two books. Uh, but I haven't, I haven't read it. And I think they just came out with uh, one volume with both books in it. So, right. Uh, you can buy that. I, I enjoyed it, the first one. It's uh, about these people who harvest dream energy and do all kinds of things uh, with it. So huh. It was enjoyable. That's cool. And Aline, have you read those? I don't. Um, I've tried reading. Uh, I've tried reading it, but it's got that higher barrier to entry, huh. um, like Nine Fox Gambit. And so I actually yes. picked it up on Audible. So I'm going to try listening to it and seeing how I do with it. I will get those. I think I have The Killing Moon and haven't read it. So I will probably do that at some point. But I just read two of her books in short succession. So I'm going to take a little break, which <laughs> goes back to one of our initial points, which is I feel like her books are so rich and and thought-provoking and they're well-written and, and they, they aren't quick reads, which doesn't mean that they're they're slogs. They're not. But but I do feel like after I, I read one of them, it, it is like a really good rich meal and I kind of want to let it settle and... And and also she only writes, you know, maybe if we're lucky, a book a year, right? So I also mm-hmm. don't want to just, I kind of want to save them and know that there, there, I got a couple N.K. Jemison books out there that I haven't read yet uh, because they are, I love them when I read them. And so there, there's that weird thing. It's a little bit like Dan talking about how he doesn't want to read the last Terry Pratchett novel because then there won't be any, <laughs> any left, right? It's a little bit like that. Yep. Whereas N.K. Jemison's still writing books. It's fine. She's fine. But again, <laughs> it's like why, you know. 
I don't want to use up the queue there and then have to just wait painfully like I have to do when there's a new Game of Thrones novel, right? <laughs> Which is like... Oh, jeez. It was great while I was getting caught up, and then I got caught up, and now I'm just like everybody else going, George, where's the book? So, you know, <laughs> that's no good. Yeah, I think your, uh, I think your analogy about the, the very rich meal is probably kinder sounding than mine's about, mine was about exercise. <laughs> but, but I tell you, I feel better after exercising than I do after having eaten a good meal. So I think yeah. we need, you know, somewhere in the happy medium in between those things. Mm. We have to start eating our rich meals while we're exercising. Oh, um, no. I'm sick just thinking no. about it. <laughs> that is, that would be, it, that would be a great diet. I'm sure somebody has already come up with a fad diet. The, the fad <laughs> diet where you can eat anything you like, but only while you're running. Hey, if not, we could make a million this is mm. this is the you know next money maker for the incomparable right yeah or biking you know whatever you can run mm. or bike but you basically you have to be you have to be pedaling or running furiously and then uh and then you can eat like a hamburger but only when you're running and, and we'll <laughs> call it good. the vomit while running diet <laughs> it'll be great <laughs> <laughs> you, the pounds just yeah. come off <laughs> yeah they, they melt away that's yeah. right or, or, or are vomited away. One of those. <laughs> they get washed away. This, this took a turn. <laughs> um, how did we get here? Let's, I have uh, no I idea. Don't, I don't know how we got here. It was probably something involving a, a floating gem or a moon. Um, but we're going to move mm, on no and very quickly do a round of what are we reading, which we're, where we talk about books that we've read recently that we would like to mention. It doesn't have to be something you're reading right this moment, but books that you've read recently that you would like to mention. Scott. Jason. What have you been reading? What have I been McDulty? reading? Yes. Uh, I've been reading a bunch of stuff uh, as of late. Currently, I am reading, as uh, mentioned in the beginning, uh, the latest Ian McDonald book, which is uh, the second part in his New Moon trilogy. I, th- I originally thought it was only supposed to be two books, but I hear now the ending of this book is not actually an ending, so oh, no. I don't know how many books it's going to be, uh, which is kind of disappointing because I do get a little sick of long-running series, um, but uh, I enjoy Ian McDonald, so I trust him, and I will just continue to read whatever he writes. I like uh, New Moon. So you're reading Wolf Moon? I am reading Wolf Moon. All right. I didn't know that was out. I'll, I'll, I'll read that. I liked. I liked New Moon. It was fun. It's out. You it, should read it. It just came out, didn't it? Like uh, in the last yesterday. week or so. Yeah. I think. Uh, yeah, it's really good. I'm enjoying it so far. I'm not done. Twenty five percent in. Okay. And it's good. You will. Uh, this is not a spoiler, but uh, 1980s fashion is back in style on the moon. Sweet. So, uh, <laughs> so if you if you've got your uh, your leg warmers and your ripped mm-hmm. sweatshirt and your big yep. hoop earrings, here's what you do. Go to the moon. Go, go to the moon. <laughs> and everyone will welcome you. They'll welcome you. Uh, that's great. That's, that's <laughs> great right. Plan. All, all the people on the moon. Uh, and the other book that I read right before that was a book that it was on my Kindle for a long time. My wife had read it. She told me to read it. I ignored her advice. Uh, but then I read it about a year after she told me to. Uh, Ghost Talkers by Mary Robinette Cowell. Oh, yeah. That's how she said Cool. Uh, it's good. Set World War One. The idea is that the mediums are real, and uh, they are a secret that the uh, British Army uh, is using. Uh, they train their soldiers to look around as they're dying and remember what's happening, and then they, their souls are taken and uh, interrogated by mediums, and they get information about the battlefield and such. And there's a mystery. It's it's very good, and very. I read it in like. Uh, four hours. Wow. Very good. All right. I like her books. I've read a couple of her Either. books. And I know some people are, are turned off by the idea of Jane Austen with magic. So this is uh, World War One with spirituality. So totally different. I guess that's better. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. Aline, anything that you've been reading lately you'd like to mention? Um, I, well, we just recorded our Neil Gaiman episode not we too did. long ago. So we got our I list out was... there, didn't we? Yeah, so I've been um, reading, uh, so I read American Gods and then Nancy Boys. Um, I've been rereading the Expanse series. I'm working on, I'm reading a lot. This is Ooh. a nice thing. I'm working on going through the Expanse series again. I haven't read the most recent book yet because I'm, I'm working my way through them again. Um, but one thing I wanted to mention was uh, I recently read uh, The Giver. So when I was young, The Giver by Lewis L- 
Lois Laurie came out and there was no sequel to it. And I loved that book. I read it, I don't know, like four or five times. And then in my adulthood, she actually came out with three sequels to it. And so I, if you're like me, maybe in your mid thirties or younger, and you didn't know that there were sequels to The Giver and you read that book when you were little, you might want to go check those out because they were pretty good. I didn't love the fourth one, but but they were all really interesting. I thought it was kind of a, a fascinating world that she put together. And yeah, working my way through the Nebula best novel books very slowly, but working my way through them too. <laughs> Erica? I was just sort of looking back at the stuff that I've been reading lately, and I realized it is pretty much all stuff that is written by my friends. So I feel like like I'm I'm being super nepotistic here, but uh, but this is legitimately what I have been reading. Uh, I read The Lost Child of Lichford by Paul Cornell, which is the sequel to The Witches of Lichford. Uh, They're both novellas published on tour.com and quite enjoyed that just delightful little world. It's it's very fantastical and takes place in a little English country village that's sort of on the border of of fairyland-ish sort of stuff. So uh and has three really amazing women at the heart of the story, all who have very, very different personalities and interact, I think, in a very realistic way. So love those. Um I also I am working my way through the Nebula books, which are not written by friends of mine. But the other book that I am in the middle of right now is also by Paul Cornell, and it is called Chalk. And it is a... We were talking about books sometimes taking a long time to read because they're difficult. And this is is one like that. And it's not difficult in a bad way. It is just... It is a book that has sort of dark fantasy elements, but it is... Uh, a lot about bullying and follows the the life of this young boy who is growing up in England and the struggles that he goes through. And if you had any kind of a rough childhood in school, it can like it, it hits really close to home um, hmm. in a lot of ways. So it's it's very good. And I'm only about halfway through and haven't haven't gotten to, you know, to see everything that happens so far, but it is one that I have to take in sort of small bites in order to get through it because otherwise it's just going to be a little bit too heavy for me. Um, And also, as usual, I am trying to keep up on Uncanny Magazine because I do their podcast over there. And for their last... um, for the last episode of the podcast, or one of the recent ones, I got to read a story by my Verity co-host, Tansy Raina Roberts, and it is called Some Cupids Kill with Arrows. And it is a very lighthearted, short little story about what if Greek gods were actually real and you ended up speed dating a bunch of them. Um, and then it kind of goes on from there. And it's... <laughs> It's just kind of hilarious and fun. And in addition to that, there's a whole bunch of nonfiction in Uncanny Magazine these days. They they have been sort of soliciting essays about uh, resistance and how people who create art can survive in a world that is changing from what we sort of have have dealt with before and how to to keep yourself sane and, and keep creating and that sort of stuff. So that's all good things to read at The Uncanny, which I've been enjoying quite a bit. Nice. Um, I just read uh, John Scalzi's The Collapsing Empire, which I enjoyed. It's a fun book. I don't think it's Scalzi's best book. I thought it doesn't have, as Scott mentioned earlier, like it's it doesn't have the the art. I think of uh, the writing doesn't carry the weight of of something like N.K. Jemison with it. But it's fun space opera. If you want galaxy spanning galact you know galactic empires and machinations and things like that and various lords and all all, all of that on planets, um, it's got all of that. In in fact, I would say it, it reads to me, and he hasn't cited this I think as an influence, but it reads to me as very much in the style of the Miles Vorkosigan novels by Lois McMaster Bujold. It feels very much like that. There are ver- some very Bujold characters in that. There's more swearing. There's more swearing, but (laughs) the setting seems very similar to that. I could almost imagine the planet called End in this being very much like a like a like a Barayar on uh, in Bujold's world, not quite as feudal, but still kind of like at the the back end of of nowhere. And uh, and then the Galactic Empire is somewhere else. There's even an Imperial Auditor in it, which is a, a job from that Miles has in some of the Vorkosigan novels. But it's fun. It is the it is a setup for 
a series, you will get to the end of the first book uh, and be much less disappointed if it's very clear from the beginning that this is a prologue. This is set up for the the overarching plot of the series. But it's spaceships and wormholes and uh, and world building and daring do and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. So it's a fun read. Scott, you read it too, right? Uh, I have not read it. Oh, okay. Well, if you read it, it, I have it on. You will find it fun. Uh, well, good. I, I look forward to it. I, I got it. For, well, I have it on hold in the library, ah, but it hasn't come yet. The library. Also, mm-hmm. you should go to the library right. yes. and read books. I'm reading All the Birds in the Sky right now, um, which is Charlie Jane Anders, and that was one of the uh, one of the uh, Nebula nominees. And I'm reading that from the library because the library mm. is your friend, and sometimes you can yes, even it's... check out eBooks from the library. Mm-hmm. They've got books there. They do. They'll give them to you. Well, yeah. they'll loan them to you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Bring them back, people. That's All right. Well, I think we've reached the end of our book club. Yay. <gasps> Go read N.K. Jemison. the last book club. No, for now. Only for now, Scott. <laughs> oh, okay. Scott, <laughs> sorry. Scared. Sorry. Hold on. To be continued. Mm, oh, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I've sold you. This is all a setup because this is just oh, the man. latest in a continuing series that never ends. Uh, Scott <sighs> McNulty. Thank you for being on the book club again. It's good to have you back. I felt really w- weird talking about a book when you weren't around. Uh, well, thank you. I, I felt weird having you people talk about a book without me being around. But okay. uh, if I'm not interested in the books, uh, I don't show up. I think that's a good way, way to go. Also now, from now on, if I'm talking just in life to somebody about a book, I'm going to give you a call. Just gonna, <laughs> you should. Just gonna, <laughs> and I'll I, chime in. I should talk to Scott. Let's put him on speaker. See what he says. You read this book? And Scott will say, yes, but I don't remember it. I and don't then remember. we'll move on. <laughs> and then I'll hang up and then it'll be fine. You can just put that on a loop and I can just play it from my phone. Like, hello, Jason. I did read that book, but I do not remember it. Beep. Why is there a beep at the end? I don't know. That's how I end all my sentences. <laughs> beep. beep. <laughs> Eric Ensign, thank you for being here. You know, it was really nice to be on a book club episode where I really genuinely enjoyed the books. Isn't that nice? Isn't that good? (laughs) This is great. It happens sometimes from time to time. It happens. And Aline Sims, thank you. I'm so happy that you could be here to talk about these books that you love. Me too. I got to talk about my two favorite authors in like less than two weeks. That's pretty great. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, reading a lot of Neil Gaiman and N.K. Jemisin lately, and then when I did switch to some other books, it's like a bit of an adjustment. <laughs> yeah. It's like, wow. It is. And again, nothing wrong with, they have very specific styles, but when you're, when you're, when you've dealt with people with that kind of style, um, it's a, it's, it's hard because not everybody writes books like that. Not everybody has all of those skills. They have different skills. That's fine. But these two, it was a lot of fun. It's fine. Everybody's okay. It's fine. I like your books, too. I we're like not mad the at books. them. We're just You're disappointed. Not broken. Just fine. disappointed, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. We appreciate you listening to our podcast about books and other things. We'll be back next week with who knows what, something ridiculous probably because that's us. Uh, But until then, I've been Jason Snell, your host. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.